Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey everyone, this week's episode of Talk Easy is supported by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional films from around the globe. Each day, Mubi introduces a new, hand-picked gem, and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, brand new festival favorite, or a critically acclaimed masterpiece, there's always a perfectly curated selection of films to discover. You can watch their first theatrical release, Baden Baden, as it plays in limited release around the country. Try a free 30 days at movie.com slash talkeasy. All right, here we go. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of long-form conversations with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso. Today on the program, we have film critic, author, director, person who has so many jobs it's impossible to name them all, Matt Zollerseitz. Born in Dallas, Texas, you've likely read something Matt has written over the last decade. Currently, Seitz is a TV critic for New York Magazine where he pens reviews and lengthy features about the good, bad, and ugly in television. He's written so much about TV, in fact, that he recently co-authored a book with Alan Sepinwall called Yes, This Is True, TV, The Book, Two Experts Choosing the Greatest American Television Program of All Time. I will not spoil which one they choose, but inexplicably, it's not community, and I think there's something wrong with that. Seitz has also been writing about film since his college days at Southern Methodist University. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Salon, and The House Next Door, which he founded. Right now, Seitz serves as the editor-in-chief of RogerEbert.com, where he reviews films and helps preserve the legacy of Roger. Matt's most recent accomplishment, to list them all would take days, is the Oliver Stone Experience, a rollicking compendium of essays, analysis, and interviews with Oliver that took over five years to write. The book serves as an unofficial follow-up to the Wes Anderson collection, which Seitz penned a few years ago and quickly became a New York Times bestseller. We recorded the conversation in early November, before the election, while Matt was in Los Angeles for this event I helped put together at Cinefamily, Two Nights of Stone. When we told Oliver that we were showing the hand, he laughed pretty hysterically and then asked, who came up with that strange idea? Well, uh, anyway, Seitz and I get into the nuts and bolts of film criticism, spending years with Stone one-on-one, and how he's remained increasingly prolific over the years. So, finally, 
Here is Matt Silversides. Uh, you've been writing about movies for a while. Yes, uh, professionally since 1991, and if you count when I when I was in college, since 1987 or eight. Were you? Like on the college campus, were you known as like the film critic guy? No, I actually when I got there, I I I went there to study. Well, I should back up a little bit and say that in I I was equally interested in visual art and writing growing up, and I used to make films, quote unquote films, when I was a little kid, where I would cut paper into strips that were exactly the right width of a thirty-five millimeter film strip, and I would draw frames on them, and then I had this shoebox with a whole, with a rectangle cut out of it that was exactly the size of a frame and I had this like the this roller thing that I had on either side of the box so I could Very pull elaborate. it through yeah it was like a it was like a Max Fisher sort of contraption and I would show people my movies and I would sit there with them for like an hour or two hours and spool this massive thing through this and I would describe what was happening and do the characters and the dialogue and stuff it was usually like Godzilla movies and Star Wars and things like that have you sort of investigated or tried to figure out why you were so attracted to film at a young age? Well, I was displaced. You know, my parents got a divorce when I was seven, and I moved from Dallas to Kansas City, and I lived with my maternal grandparents for five years. And that's and that's really, I think, when my, my interest in movies really started to deepen. I was just a little kid. I don't think I even knew that movies were made by people until <laughs> 1976, or something when I ordered from Scholastic Book Club this book on the making of King Kong, and it was a behind-the-scenes paperback book with all these pictures, and they showed all the different models of King Kong. This is the Jessica Lang version. And King Kong, the fact that King Kong was played by a guy in a suit and an audio-animatronic, large-scale, like, full-scale puppet made by Carlo Rambaldi, who later did E.T., and Rick Baker played Kong in the suit, which is interesting. So he designed were, the suit that and he wore it. where you knew that was... There were people making these movies. Yeah, yeah, that was when I that was when I started to get interested in it. And of course, then Star Wars came out the following year. The original, I insist on calling it Star Wars. You know, I don't call it a New Hope because call you, want. you know that was what uh, that was what it was originally. They added that title later, and of course, there were a lot of making of books associated with that. There was the art of Star Wars, and there was you know there was a, a documentary that aired on television, and I was into that. And uh, I started reading about the making of movies. I started, you know, checking out books from the library about how movies were made. And, and then I discovered film criticism that way. I started reading. I read the film critics in the local newspapers, the Kansas City Star and the Kansas City Times. There were two back then. And I remember being really incensed that uh, one of the critics liked The Empire Strikes Back and the other one didn't. <laughs> I was like an early fanboy <laughs> about that. And I hadn't seen the movie yet, but I was pissed off that one guy didn't like it. And then see, now you understand those people who <laughs> jump in, used to jump in on Rotten Tomatoes yelling at a negative Rotten yeah. review before a movie, you know, a movie yeah, didn't even come out. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I think that uh, movies were, they were an imaginative space that I could that I could escape into. And I'm sure that that's what it is for a lot of people. A lot of people who get really, really deep into movies are lonely, alienated, disconnected from functioning society in some way. Like the seri most of the serious cinephiles I know, there's something a little off about them, and I include yeah. and I include myself in that. Like when you were displaced as a child, did you were you processing what was happening around you? Like, would it did it even make sense? No, because it was normal. I mean, you know, whatever you're going through as a child is normal. Oh. You know, you to you, to you, because you don't, well, because you don't have any frame of reference other than your own. Okay. You know, I did, uh, you know, I can't, I've talked about this before. Like I came from a, my mother and my stepfather's house was not a good situation, you know, and there was, there was alcoholism, there was domestic violence, there was fighting, there was all kinds of shit. And, uh, um, but to me that was normal. Like my stepfather had a gun in every room of the house because he was afraid we were going to be and that the ho our home was going to be invaded, and we knew where the guns were. I mean, it was like a parent. He was like a paranoid like cult leader practically at that mm -hmm. time. And when I got to college, and we would be sitting around telling like funny stories about our family, right, and it'd right. be like ha ha ha. My uncle always wears flip flops everywhere. Ha ha. And I would say like <laughs> my you know my my stepdad had a room had a gun in every room of the house in case. I would say my stepdad had a room, a gun in every room in the house in case we were invaded by Negroes. 
And I, and I was like, kind of that crazy as if like everybody had that experience. Was there deafening silence in the room? Yeah. People are like, well, it's one of those things where like when somebody shares with you what they think is an, is a typical experience and you're horrified, what do you say? Right. You know, it's like, uh, not everybody's childhood was like that, mm. you know? And what about your father? He's a pianist. He's a, yeah, he, he's a jazz pianist and composer. Very and, good. Uh, I mean, the videos I've seen have, that you've shared. No, he's, he's brilliant. And, uh, he's, uh, Really sweet guy. He's a very sweet guy. He's he's really really nice, you know, and treats other people well. And uh, he's been a jazz musician, making music, performing music, and writing music has been his sole source of income since he was about twenty years old, which I think is a greater accomplishment than almost anybody who I know. You know, like mm-hmm. I know people who are much more famous than my dad, but he's 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 one of the guys I respect the most. Yeah, and you know, professionally because. He never had anything to fall back on, and somehow he made it work. Mm. You know, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. I think the same could be said about you, though. You both chose fields that are not terribly easy to uh, create a sustaining career. No, and it's not easy. It's not easy, and it's not, you know, it's harder now than it was 20 years ago. Mm. You know, 20 years ago, I had one, uh, you know, I moved to New York, and I got a job at a large daily newspaper. This was after college. Yeah, this was after college. I I wrote for the Dallas Observer for about four years, and then I got a job offer from uh, the Newark Star-Ledger to be a pop culture critic, and I went up there, and, you know, um, the money that I was making at that point was enough to rent a very small apartment in the West Village for me and my wife, and and uh, I didn't need any other income. Mm. And now I have two full-time jobs, and I put out two books a year. Mm. So, you know, that, that, that tells you all you need to know about how how journalism has changed and in the sense of how hard it is to support yourself just doing that. I wanted to back up because you met Jen in college, right? Yes. Do you remember, like, the first day you guys met? <laughs> well, we worked at the SMU bookstore for quite a long time. What was that? Uh, and, uh, and uh, well, you know, we stamped. We were, we, I worked in receiving, and she worked out on the floor. And sometimes I would take books out of the receiving room and uh, open them up, and we would have to stamp, you know, we would have to stamp them with SMU bookstore logo right. and uh, put them on the shelves and... Uh, at st- you know, price tags and stuff. And, uh, we worked, we often were working at the same table and I liked her. She was, you know, knew a lot about movies and was very attractive, but I didn't understand that she <laughs> had, that she liked me in that way because I'm dim. I'm a little dim. You've always been dim in that way? In that way. Yeah. I think I'm getting a little more attuned to it, but, but, uh, yeah, I was a complete idiot. It was like, you know, Took me quite a long time to figure it out. But in retrospect, were there clear signs that she was interested? Well, yeah, because she read everything that I wrote, and she didn't hesitate to argue with me when she thought I was full of shit. At the sign. Yeah, it was a sign. <laughs> you know, one that one that I was too too much of a dim bulb to interpret correctly. But eventually, I figured it out. How long did that take? Uh, about two months. It's not that bad. No, in the greater scheme, it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. How, how was it in, in the beginning? It was. <laughs> this is a considerably deeper interview than I thought it was going to be. Sorry, Matt. It was great. It was great. You know, I mean, it was fantastic. Um, uh, I lucked out. You Every know? time you've described it to me, I always thought like, because I met you before I went to college. Yeah. And you talked about it briefly, and it always sounded like <laughs> you're looking at me like I'm crazy. No. It always sounded like. That sounds great. That sounds like the thing I want to do. With well, I go that's to what everybody. That's what everybody. That's what everybody wants deep down is to find somebody who totally gets them like really early in life, so you don't have to keep looking. Yeah, and I that mean, was did me. Did that clear a lot of headspace for you? Yeah, like, it did. That it out? did. It was only in retrospect that I realized how you know what a blessing that was, and and particularly when I started when I entered the working world, because once I entered the working world. You know, I saw my friends, you know, a lot of my friends had steady boyfriends or girlfriends and, you know, sometimes they stayed together through college and sometimes they broke up. But, you know, four years is not that long of a time, like mm-hmm. in the span of a life. So sure. you get a false sense of permanence with college, you know, relationships around you. But then I got into the working world and I started working alongside a lot of people who are married. And when I heard how people talked about their husbands and wives when they weren't in happy marriages, it was very eye opening. And it was another situation that's funny because this is another situation where like whatever somebody's normal is, they think it's your normal too. And there'd be people and there'd be like a dude in the office who sat near me who would come over and try to commiserate about how horrible his marriage was and how how disappointed he was (laughs) in his wife. And all I could do was go like, "Uh uh-huh, 
you know, gee, what what a shame. That's a bummer. I'm sorry. Hmm. You know, like I, was, I didn't have any stories I could offer in return. Well, you have you know, it's like, well, my situation's awesome. Yeah. You know, like, what do you say? <laughs> no one wants to hear that. No, <laughs> no one wants to hear how great things are. <laughs> no, no, nobody through. does. Nobody does. So, so you moved to Newark. I moved to the West Village, but I worked in Newark. Okay. Yeah. And I took the path train to work. I took the path train to and that from work. That was the place where you met... Um, Godfrey? Did you meet Godfrey at the, at the paper? I thought you met... No, no. Uh, I met Alan Seppenwall yeah, at the Alan. Star Ledger, yeah, yeah, yeah in 1996. Alan. But Godfrey lived in the West Village and... Uh, Godfrey Cheshire, who was the f- film critic and film editor of New York Press for quite a long time, uh, he they put a notice in the paper shortly after I moved to New York saying they were looking for a second film critic, right. and I submitted my clips, and I had been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize a year earlier, and I think that made them jump out, and he... He met me for lunch at some coffee shop in the West Village and, and hired me. So I so I started writing alongside Godfrey in ninety five and then uh, in ninety seven Armin White joined us and we right. were like the you know, this unholy trinity of I wanna talk about that triumvirate. <laughs> Before though, I mean what age were you when you got the Pulitzer Prize like nomination or you I was twenty I'm trying to remember exactly what the sequencing was. It would have been I was twenty five. <laughs> it's so young. Well, it's it's bizarre too because I didn't know. I knew that my editor had submitted my clips, but I thought that was ridiculous. It was like that's whatever, fine. You know, it's like that's absurd. And then I got a call from uh, a woman that I knew at the uh, at New York Newsday, an editor who had tried to hire me before. She kept trying to hire me to do something up there, and she and they could never. She could never like quite get them to hire me like it that was up for two or three different positions and they always gave it to somebody else and right. she called me up and said congratulations and i said on what and she i heard her cover the receiver and say he doesn't know <laughs> and she told me and then i heard everyone <laughs> laughing their asses off at my reaction so i mean this is pre-internet i mean it wasn't really pre-internet but people weren't on the internet yeah, in the way that they like are now news distributed it wasn't like you internet. get google news alerts on your phone you yeah. didn't have a freaking phone Here's in your pocket times push update yeah. Right, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. We had, we actually had an AP wire, but it was a, do, it was attached to a dot matrix printer, and you could hear it, you know, all that sounds like a foreign language to me. It is. I know it's crazy. It's like Flintstones technology now, <laughs> and faxes were coming in, you know. And if you wanted to get an interview with somebody, they'd say like, "Okay, fax your request," and you had to like write it out and print it and mm-hmm. and fax it. It's crazy. It really is like steampunk technology by today's standards. Did you feel any weight from that nomination? Like, did, was there any pressure moving forward? Like, oh wow, I, this is what people see my writing as. Uh, or was all yes, that bullshit? Yeah, you know, I did. I did because um, I didn't feel like I thought it was ridiculous that I got that I got that honor that early. Yeah. Like, I never had a sense of well, hey, I must be hot shit. It was more like this is really bizarre. Does this happen? Because I thought, like, when I read those clips that I submitted, I go, yeah, yeah, the kid could write, but I don't feel like I knew nearly as much as I should have, you know? Like, I think it was more a case of, for whatever reason, the quality of the prose carried carried it past the fact that there weren't as many ideas there as there should have been. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I was doing good work back then, I'm not going to lie. It was good for a 25-year-old. And and I think there's a talking dog kind of quality to it too, like where you find out like this guy's only 25, and look at how well he writes. And you know, so you're kind of, I think you get kind of a curve that way. But I wasn't doing work on the level of a lot of my peers who were older than me. Mm-hmm. I don't think, but that's my perception of it. But that said, um, it opened doors for me, and and it was something to live up to. And in fact, it did affect me a little bit at the Star Ledger because the reason they hired me there was they think, well, this kid's a Pulitzer finalist; he's gonna he's gonna win at some point in the near future, and we want him to be here when he does. And I never did. I got close a few times, you know. Um, people on the committee told me that I got close a few times, but it never happened for mm. me. And after a while, they did start to ask, like, why did we hire this guy? He hasn't won us a Pulitzer yet. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had actually very frank conversations with editors about that. But most people don't win Pulitzers. No, they don't. But, you know, they they moved me up from Dallas, mm-hmm. I think, hoping for that. I'm making it sound like they're totally mercenary, and they really weren't. They were nice people. But when you're the boss, there are considerations, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, but it was a great time. It was a great time. And that was like, in retrospect, that was the last great age of newspapers, hmm. of print newspapers, was the 90s. They were, they were still flush with cash. Back then, daily newspapers were, they were a cash cow for a lot of publishing chains. Like Condé Nast, you know, the Newhouse Company owns them. Condé Nast uh, has all these very glamorous magazines that they, that they put out. But the money, that, the real money was coming in from their daily newspapers, like the New, or New Orleans Times-Picayune and the New York Star-Ledger and places like that. And uh, they were making money hand over fist because people were still subscribing to print newspapers and people were still advertising in print newspapers. And so they were spending money, and they were spending money to hire hire writers away from other newspapers. There were bidding wars for particular writers. And, you know, at, at one point I was... I was torn between the Newark Star Ledger and a couple of other papers that wanted me, you know, and like the money really wasn't that great in terms of the entire business of journalism. But if you're 25, it seemed like a lot of money, mm. you know, it was like, it sounds like the golden age of <laughs> writing and print. Well, no, I mean, it wasn't as good as say probably the seventies were, mm. I, I, I think the seventies, like that's always my fantasy decade is like to, to enter journalism about the time that David Simon did, which is the mid seventies where, you know, Watergate had just happened and reporters were kind of heroes of the Republic. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of great investigative journalism being done in newspapers and magazines. Like that, that would be my fantasy is to write for white for the Washington post in 1978 or something, or maybe, um, Esquire, mm. you know, but, uh, yeah, it's really bad right now. It's really bad. And, and, uh, I think the worst part is that we, starting in the late nineties and early aughts, we all collectively agreed to normalize this idea that creative work should not be compensated, that it's something that should be available for free, you know, whether it's journalism or music, you know, that was when file sharing started to get big and nobody saw a problem with it. And now I think there's this perception among an entire new generation that, if you click on something, if you read something, if you listen to something, if you have given your attention to something, that that constitutes payment, mm. and it doesn't. Mm. And and people who do creative work all over this country are struggling with that. And I don't know what the solution is. I think technology has to change again so that people who do intellectual labor will be pay compensated again. Right. But I'm not holding my breath. Did you feel that shift happening in the 90s? Absolutely. And in fact, there were a number of discussions at the Star-Ledger about why don't we have a website? Everybody else is starting a website. We should have a website. And then the next logical question was, why the fuck would we want to do that? Why do we want to give it away for free and make people subscribe and pay us for the work we do? Mm. It's like, yeah, but everybody else is doing it. And, and like, we're going to monetize the content and sell ads online and all that stuff. And it did happen, but it wasn't as, it wasn't as profitable as display ads in a newspaper were. And, and, you know, an editor of mine at New York Magazine told me one time, shortly after I started, that uh, he said the single biggest he'd been in the business for longer than I have, and he said the single biggest the single biggest shift, like ultimately in newspaper business in the in the media business from when I started out, is it used to be that if you lived in a particular city and you wrote for a particular newspaper, you were competing only with other outlets in your area, and now you're competing not only with every other media outlet mm -hmm. on the planet, but with all all of these unpaid amateurs and aficionados many of whom are just as good as the people on staff and so you know if you're a, if you're a critic you're not only competing with you know your take on a certain film you're not only going to be judged against a.o scott and you know manola dargis stephanie zakarik you know you're going to be judged against you know fernando croce or keith ulick or sheila o'malley mm. and uh those last three may may have the best takes yeah, you know, that's may. the way. And actually, some of them, most of them are, have uh, paid gigs now, too. And there's a lot of fluidity, too. I know a lot of people who have regular gigs, but they also they also run their own blogs where they write stuff that they're not compensated for just because they want to have their take out there. Mm -hmm. And that, in in weird way, that benefits them because people who like your voice, they want to hear your take on everything. They do. And, and probably a third of the questions I get on Twitter are, have you seen such and such? What did you think of it? Let's talk about that trio from earlier. For the New York Press? Yeah, I was talking about it. I stayed with um, Bilja yeah. uh, this past week. And one night, we were up to like 2 in the morning just talking about a bunch of shit. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how much he loved, just loved you three 
in the New York press. It was like his favorite sort of bit of film criticism. Well, and also the best part of it was you never knew when one of us was going to take a pot shot at one of the others. This is exactly what That was, what part, he of, that said. was part of the fun of it. That's and I didn't said. know either. Like I, I opened up the paper every week with a sense of trepidation. It's like, all right, which one of these guys is going to call me out? <laughs> and it was, you know, it was fun. It was fun. It was certainly different than anything I'd ever experienced or heard of. Hmm. Um, what was Armand like back then? He was um, pretty much like he is now in the sense that he is a very, very sweet guy who's easy to talk to in person. But in print, he can be, he can be this fire breathing, hammer swinging, you know, voice from the clouds, mm. you know, and that's and that's the disconnect that I always was unable to entirely get my mind around or accept. But I will say that Armand and I. We don't talk. We haven't talked much in a long time. I mean, he's very cordial when I see him, but we used to have very long phone conversations about movies. There'd be times where I'd, you know, I'd call him up or he'd call me up about something, uh, you know, one of us wrote or that Godfrey wrote or that some other critic wrote. And, you know, we talked for like an hour or an hour and a half about stuff. It was great. And, uh, he was, um, tremendously helpful to me. You know, he and Godfrey were both. They're about the same age. You know, they're about, I think they're both in their early 60s. And, um, and I was much younger. Mm. I was much younger than them. And, and so they were both like mentors to me. And, and I got something different from, from each of them. And, uh, Armand, uh, I'll never forget one time I was, he was, he was yelling at me about some, not literally yelling, but he was, he was kind of busting my chops about some review of a film. I can't remember if I liked it and he did or the reverse, but uh, he thought he thought my reading of the film was was completely wrong and stupid. And I said, "Well, you're the one who said that hard rain was a was a metaphor for the savings and loan crisis." <laughs> and he and without missing a beat, he said, "Well, they can't all be gems," <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was great. Like people don't see that side of Armin. People don't see like they don't see people who only know him from like news accounts of his public misbehavior. They don't know how witty and charming and insightful he can be a lot of the time. And he, and he is. And, you know, another thing which he said that I quote all the time is, uh, I had gone to see this Marlon Brando film. It was one of his late films. I think it might have been the score or something. And, um, he, he liked it better than most people. And I didn't like it at all, mainly because I was disappointed in Brando. And he said, what are you disappointed about? And I said, disappointed that Brando hasn't given a truly great performance, like a really earth-shaking performance in like over 20 years at least. And, you know, he said, well, what about a dry white season? And I said, well, that was one scene. And what about Don Juan DeMarco? Like, I enjoyed that, but that's not, you know, that's mm -hmm. not on the waterfront. That's not the Godfather. Um, that's not reflections in a golden eye. And he said, Matt, there are maybe 20 performances in the history of American cinema that are as interesting as any film, and Brando's given at least four of them. Give him a fucking break. Mm. And I think about that whenever I hear discussions of, you know, any art form or any artist who, you know, isn't at their absolute peak during their entire career. Mm -hmm. I always hear Armin going, give, him a, give the guy a fucking break. That's how, <laughs> I, that's how I feel with conversations often about, like, Spike Lee. Yeah, it's like Spike Lee directed... I could probably name 10 films off the top of my head that I think are masterpieces or or pretty fucking great mm -hmm. that Spike Lee has directed. Um, there are a lot of directors who haven't directed one, you know? And he's, I, don't, I don't think people give him a break at all. No, they really don't, and that's partly his own doing. You know, a, a directors who decide to be public um, public intellectuals or celebrities as well as directors tend to, at a certain point, the other thing tends to take over in the public's mind, especially if they're directors who who do basically art house films, mm. you know, who do non blockbustery type stuff like Spike Lee has always done. And people, when people hear Spike Lee, they're like, Oh, that loud mouth, that loud mouth black guy. That's what a lot of white Americans hear when they hear the word Spike Lee. And like they hear Oliver Stone and they go, Oh, that left wing blowhard Oliver Stone. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they think. It's like, he's the guy that be the Spike Lee and Oliver Stone are people that Fox news channel talk shit about, or, you know, Breitbart news talk shit about. That's how, that's how people know them. But they're they're filmmakers, they're artists. What a strange way to be known. Yeah, it is. It is a strange way to be known. But you know, it's only in America that we have a serious cognitive dissonance issue with people like that. You know, in Europe, there's directors, there's poets, there's novelists, all kinds of actors who like. Mm 
they don't they not only practice their art form but they're also they're lecturing they're appearing on talk shows they're writing editorials about things that are unrelated to their art and in some cases they're serving as politicians mm. and it's not treated as a big shocking thing but it know? is shocking i mean uh, it is treated in, in america as a shocking thing when like here's mindy kaling writing something for the new yorker right here's jesse eisenberg writing something for the new yorker right one of my favorite examples of that is when uh Tom Hanks got nominated for, oh, he won uh, Best Actor from the New York Film Critics Circle for his performance in Castaway. Mm-hmm. And I invited my younger brother to come to the dinner with me. And he's, and Tom Hanks was standing there talking to people beforehand. Before the dinner began, he was just hanging out talking to people because everybody wants to say talk to Tom Hanks to be able to say they talked to him. And my brother says, do you think I could go up and talk to him? Like, he's talking to everybody else. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, he's one of those people who's fine with that. And he's like, all right. What should I say? And I said, my best advice whenever you're talking to a really famous person is ask them about something that they don't get asked about all the time. And he said, well, you know, Tom Hanks writes, he writes articles for the, for NASA's magazine and they're about NASA. They're like about, yeah, they're about actual history of NASA. It's like, it'll be an article that's about the, the, E six seventeen telemetry blah 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 on the such and such module. It's like by Tom Hanks, and at the bottom it says Tom Hanks is an actor. Like it's not even like your usual six lines of yeah. of self fluffery as what you usually get when a movie star yeah. writes something. Tom Hanks came to prominence when he was in Forrest Gump, and uh, yeah. So he went up and talked to Tom Hanks about his writing for uh, writing about NASA, and Hanks was really really excited that somebody knew that he did that. But my point is. People are not their public roles. That's not all they are, mm. you know. And uh, have you started to grapple with that a little bit? Um, in your own way. I mean, it's certainly different. I don't think I'm on that level yet. I don't think I'm on that level where people are like going, "What's he gonna? What's he gonna do next?" And oh, this is out of character for him. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm at that. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm subjected to that level of scrutiny. Certainly not. But you're definitely someone. It seems like on Twitter mm-hmm. that you've built a. A brand, or I don't, I don't know, whatever the words we're using today. Well, I, I did make a decision a couple of years ago. I still tweet about politics occasionally, but I made a decision a couple of years ago. I used to tweet about all kinds of things. Um, you used to get angry. I did. I used to get angry a lot more, um, but I used to, I used to be extremely eclectic in what I tweeted about, and I would link to articles about, you know, science and medicine and and you know art criticism and dance criticism and all that kind of stuff and i still do that occasionally but i figured out that when you're on twitter people people want to know exactly what you're about and if you and if you are into too many things they they get confused and bored so i narrowed it down it's like television and movies and things related to television and movies and sometimes i'll bring other stuff into it mm-hmm. if it's something that's related to art you know, art or perceiving art or communication or something like that. And, uh, and I'm also just more, um, I'm more aware than ever with each passing month of the limitations of social media when it comes to actually having a serious discussion about anything. And I don't get too, I don't get too wrapped up in that stuff anymore. Like I used to allow conversations to go on for hours or longer, you know, and it's like, you know, once I, I found that ad like, very admirable. But well, yeah, but it's not really because because what you're doing is you're validating the idea that you can actually have a conversation on Twitter and you really can't. You can have this sort of weird little puny facsimile of a conversation on Twitter. Mm. And so I usually I almost never let things go on beyond like about four exchanges now. And it's like, well, thank you for your time. And I try to be nice, but, you know, it's like I can't be. I totaled up. What happened was one day I totaled up the amount of time that I was spending having conversations on Twitter, and I realized, all right, I'm giving about two hours of my day to this stuff, and I can't be doing that. I should be writing, you know, or I should be doing laundry, or I should be, you know, cleaning out the basement or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's other things going on. I love that Gene Siskel, that famous, uh, maybe apocryphal, but I don't think so, story about Siskel and Ebert, that one time Siskel chastised, uh, or sorry, Ebert chastised Siskel for skipping a premiere of a new movie to go to a Chicago Bulls game. Oh, I thought you were going to mention something else. When Mm -hmm. Ebert sort of chastised Gene for, like, never going to film festivals. Mm Mm-hmm. And Gene was like, you, he's like, Roger, you've deluded yourself. 
These people are not your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger's like, no, I've made good friends on the phone. Like, you know. Well, also, I, Roger, I, Roger was a guy for whom um, his work was his, source of pl- his main source of pleasure. Yeah. You know, watching movies and thinking about movies and talking about movies and writing about movies was the main thing that he was about. And he had all these different permutations of that. But, but there are other people for whom art and art criticism is one thing. You know, it's one thing that they do, but they also have other aspects of their lives that may be just as rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger was someone that was instrumental in your life and in the 2000s especially. Mm-hmm. And uh, this morning I just reread something you wrote the year after he passed. Right. Um, I just wanted to reread okay. a couple of paragraphs. Is that all right? Sure. Um, this was in 2010 this happened and you said, at that point sometime in the fall of 2010, I'd been a widowed single parent for four and a half years. I was thinking of giving up on journalism and filmmaking both. The economy had cratered two years earlier and showed no signs of recovery. Journalism was hit hard. I hadn't held a full-time media job since 2006. Decently compensated writing and film editing gigs were so rare that I'd begun looking into other lines of work, applying for jobs as a limo driver, a supermarket checker, an associate media professor, and a counselor for at-risk youth. I'd also inquired about becoming an apprentice plumber because I knew that even if journalism jobs dried up, there would always be work for people who knew how to unclog pipes. You go on to say that Roger wrote you an email that morning that you woke up. You were with your kids, Mm -hmm. a rat-infested apartment. (laughs) Yeah. Things weren't great, and he wrote this line that I've, read this before and i've thought about it before and you wrote and he wrote unprompted you amaze me with your energy and your love of what you do yeah that was just out of the blue that wasn't even in response to any particular thing i published recently it was just roger thinking hey i like that kid i'm gonna say something nice to him yeah that was great and that was like that was like an energy boost for me Mm -hmm. that that was exactly the right time and roger did that for a lot of people yeah. You know, I try to do that too. I'm not as conscientious and diligent about it as Roger was, but there will be times where I like, and it's funny because I'll often I'll remember when I do it, I usually do a bunch of people all at the same time. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll write, like, you know, I'll read somebody's review again. Sometimes something that a writer for the site did like a year ago or two years ago, and I don't know why I stumble upon it again, but I'll read it and go like, that was a really fucking good piece, and I don't think I properly complimented them on it, so I'll send them a compliment. And then I'll remember like, yeah, but, you know, this other writer also did something good around that same time. Let me see if I can remember what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like a flurry. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Roger, it was more parceled out. Like Roger, one of the things that Roger, I still am learning from Roger is Roger was an absolute master at allocating the time that he had at allocating the time he had at estimating, like, what do I have to do? How long does each time, how long does each thing realistically take in order to do it well enough that I can look at it with pride. Mm-hmm. And he does, and he tried not to spend a minute on it longer than he had to. And the hard and, thing to perfect. Yeah. And to juggle all that stuff and to be, and, and I'm actually, I, I've been trying to emulate Roger in that way because mm-hmm. things take time. And like, you know, you're up against, if you're a critic, you're up against, there's certain immutable laws of the universe that cannot be obeyed, uh, disobeyed. And one of them is movies last as long as they last. Television shows last as long as they last. Reading a book takes time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a book like I interviewed Molly Haskell recently and I decided I'm going to reread every book that Molly Haskell has written and I'm a fast reader but it's like I need to make a schedule for this so I actually made a schedule it's like I'm going to spend you know three or four hours rereading as much of love and other infectious diseases as I can I'm going to spend six hours with from reverence or rape to rape uh and so on and uh and I and I and my reading time is on the train that's what I do on the train mm-hmm. as I read you know, I mentioned that moment because it strikes me as a. Are you going to eat this? You can have it, man. All right, just take it. <laughs> it strikes me. That's the title of my memoir. Are, are you going to eat this? this? <laughs> it strikes me as like a, as a vital, pivotal moment in your life. Like you, you. It sounded like you were very serious about being a, a, a limo driver. Well, I was actually the probably the thing I was going to do was I had actually applied to. Uh, there are there are there are programs that are basically counseling for social workers, mm-hmm. and that's what I was going to do. I was going to get a degree in social work, and then and then become a counselor for at risk kids. 
um, because I thought like this is ridiculous. It's just too hard to make a living as a journalist with these little little, little you know fifty bucks here, a hundred bucks there. I mean, mm-hmm. I was it was crazy, and and it's like, well, if I'm going to live you know modestly and work like to the point where I'm exhausted every day, it should be something other than writing about goddamn movies. Mm-hmm. Like I was kind of disgusted at that point. It's like let's do something that's directly affecting people's lives rather than indirectly. Mm-hmm. You know what got you over the hump. After that email, like, did you land a job somewhere? Or? Actually, not too long after that, I had been doing some freelancing for Salon, and they offered me a contract freelancing job, like not a staff job with medical, but a, but you Normal know, yeah. x number x number of pieces per week for x number of months or something. I think the term of the contract was three months or six months, mm. and and that was like, all right, the executioner's hand has been stayed. I'll stick with this for a while longer. <laughs> but you know, I've I've quit journalism. I quit journalism in theory um, in 2008, and I just went through a period where I was making a lot of movies. I was making, you know, I was cranking out video essays, and I did series, whole series of them. I probably did 100 or more hours in, you know, the space of a year and a half. That was kind of my main thing, and I was also editing stuff for other people. I was editing other people's movies. I was editing music videos and, you know, documentary film projects, none of which paid much money. It was like, you know, a 1000 bucks here, 2000 bucks there. Right. But, you know, you you got to make the money. And it was fun. It was a nice change of pace. Did you feel the pressure considering you had two kids? Of I mean, course. Like most film critics... Don't have children. Oh, that's not true. I, a lot I, of them do. I, well, maybe, the younger ones don't. Yeah, the younger ones. But they the, will. They will. They probably will. Some of them won't, but many of them will. Mm. And other, and the ones who don't will have other financial responsibilities. Like maybe they buy a house. Maybe they buy a car. Maybe they have medical issues that have to be paid for. You know, mm. like everybody's got something that they they got to make that nut for. Mm. Um, your ride's here. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I had to do that. When did you feel like it was going to be okay? I've never felt like it's going to be okay. Is that why you're the most obsessive, crazy worker right now? Probably because I think. Well, my thinking is, I'm 47 years old. I've studied a lot of people's careers, you know, in journalism, in acting, in filmmaking, in all sorts of creative fields. And when people turn 50, that's when they start to get pushed out. It happens to almost everybody. Like once in a while you get a rare exception like a Spielberg, you know, who stays at the pinnacle f- pretty much for his entire life. But that's exceedingly rare, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, so my assumption is that at a certain point people are going to get tired of me. And uh, so I need to have accomplished as much as I can and have a legacy and hopefully something that's generating income, mm-hmm. you know, like the books. Like the books, like the books, and uh, the book. That's why the books are so important, because you know, even if it's not a bestseller, you get a little check every six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I want to teach. You know, I'm going to start teaching at the University of Syracuse in the spring, and uh, I would be, you know, perfectly happy if my, you know, ten years from now I were a professor somewhere, and you know, occasionally somebody will. Uh, Email me and say, hey, I read your old review of such and such. That was really nice. Why don't you write anymore? It's like, because I'm teaching. (laughs) You know, that's fine. Hey, putting the interview on hold for a second. Um, I've been thinking a lot about creativity and the links in which one is willing to go to to make the art they want to make. And it seems... uh, in the wake of Trump, you know, I, I mentioned the podcast didn't seem important, but also there was a lot of response from a lot of people saying their work didn't matter. Their writing about film didn't matter. Their writing about TV was kind of rendered irrelevant or it paled in comparison to maybe doing some more investigative journalism about the inner workings of DC or how we got to this place. But the more I think about it, the more I'm inspired. Um, encouraged but also frightened by the career of someone like Jafar Panahi Uh, he's made Offside this is not a film The White Balloon Um, he's a transformative Iranian filmmaker who was arrested in 2010 and charged with propaganda against the Iranian government and then shortly after he was sentenced to six years in jail 
and a 20-year ban on directing any movies, writing screenplays, or giving any sort of interviews to Iranian or foreign press, or from even leaving the country unless he was really sick and needed medical help elsewhere. But what's most astonishing about Panahi is not just the work, but it's the act of creating. It's fighting back against a system that is trying to suppress him. And he did that again in his second film, it's called Closed Curtain, which he made under house arrest, that turns his own plight into a moving, humane, and, and really universal story that's at once realistic and allegorical about isolation, unjust laws, and artistic creativity. He's a filmmaker that you watch and you wonder how it's even possible that he could exist in this world. And it's because he has not given up in the face of authoritarianism and, and a government that wants to censor him. We obviously right now don't have that problem in this country, but it's possible that we may one day. So it's worth staying vigilant about and uh, most importantly, supporting Panahi. You can watch the film at movie.com slash talk easy and, and redeem your 30 day free trial just signing up and exploring this great platform helps out both movie and this podcast so if you have a moment give it a try this week all right now back to matt let's talk about the wes anderson book yeah um how do you think that went what yeah. How do I think it went? Yeah. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> How do you think that went? <laughs> I hate it. No, it, it turned out, you know, it turned out about as well as it possibly could have. I know? agree with that. Here's people, my, people, here, people can, I like my it. can I give my theory on it? Oh, sure. Okay. You are the best part of that book. I don't know about that, but continue. Okay. And the reason. Continue, Governor. The, the reason. <laughs> Proceed, for, Governor. The reason for that is because. Wes Anderson, wonderful human being as he appears to be, yeah. great filmmaker as he is, yeah. may be one of the worst interview subjects I've ever seen. And even in your case, even though you had all this time with them, yeah, yeah. you got the best case best case scenario. Right. And it's still like and now you know this especially having done something about Oliver, yeah. who's the antithesis of that. Yes. It's like it's just hard reading Wes Anderson being like no. Yes. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well, there's certain kinds of questions he won't answer. Right. And you know, and I struggled with that when when putting the book together. It's like, could I just cut out all the parts where he won't answer my questions? It's like, no, because I think that paints an accurate picture of who he is. Like, well, you know, I think it's funny to see that. Like, I think the questions, finding out what kinds of questions people won't answer, are as interesting as hearing them answer certain questions. Definitely interesting. You know, but that's, you would that's give my these, feeling. You would give these beautiful, elaborate theories and he about would, the film, and he'd he would like, say, "I don't." He's like, "Not really, not really, <laughs> not, not really." Or, uh, God, I haven't thought about it like that. I guess. I guess so. Yeah, he's a lot of I guess so's. Well, period. Well, also, he doesn't like to validate or invalidate anybody's reading of his work, no matter what it might be he doesn't do that mm. and i you know i appreciate that you know i mean if you tell him here's here's my theory about this that and the other thing you might be right or you might be wrong but he's not going to tell you because mm. he doesn't feel like art is a um it's not a multiple choice quiz you know like and it's not there's he doesn't like to encourage the idea that there's a right answer Mm-hmm. When it comes to how people react to his art personally, he's happy. He's just happy that you you reacted. Yeah. That's like his job is done now. And I think a lot of the better filmmakers are that way. And and you know some of them struggle with it, but um, I think I think the best course of action is to just accept it. Like if somebody somebody loves your work for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with your intention, just say thank you and be done with it right you know but yeah oliver's different oliver's oliver's a talker oliver's a talker and he's he's very uh transparent and unlike wes he would talk about his childhood and his personal life and and uh he's just a different kind of interview subject Mm -hmm. you know when you're spending that much time with both of them and obviously in different situations are you aware of the line between like friend and journalist is that something? Well, you're getting into? yeah, yeah. I mean, in both of those cases, like I've known Wes 
for over 20 years. Like bottle rocket days. Yeah, I mean, I knew Wes before he was Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. You know, I when I this knew him, college. yeah, he was well, it was post college, but he was living in an apartment on Throckmorton in Dallas with the Wilson brothers and Bob Musgrave, who played Bob the Wheelman. And I, I feel like there were more people living there. It was one of those situations where you weren't entirely sure who who exactly was living there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, he was just another starving college ki- a kid just out of college. You know, he was about my. I think we're about the same age, and um, uh. So I have a history that predates his fame, and that's one of the reasons why I think he agreed to do the book with me, because he knew that, uh, you know, we had that history there, you know, and, and also the fact that I was the first person ever to write uh, a, a positive, critical appreciation of anything he wrote before there was any um, body of work saying what a Wes Anderson film was. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I wrote a little review of The Bottle Rocket, The Short, and Dallas Observer, which... Turned out to be a fairly accurate predictor of the kind of filmmaker that he was and would become. And he appreciated that. Like, he appreciated that there was a guy in his in that town who got him, mm-hmm. you know? So so I didn't have to prove anything to right. him. I mean, you, un- and I and I sensed it yesterday, like, you also got Oliver. Yeah, I get Oliver. In a I, way. I get Oliver, and I, and, you know, uh, I get him as a person. Hmm. I get him as a person. That's the really important part is like Oliver is a friend of mine sent me on Twitter a picture from a Tulsa bookstore. Somebody had shelved the Oliver Stone experience in the self-transformation section of Barnes and Noble. <laughs> self-transformation. I think they used to call it self-help, but now it's self-transformation. And, nice I, and, I, and I laughed out loud because that is a book about self-transformation. This is a story of a guy who went to Vietnam to transform, you know, he tried to become a novelist and transform himself and his novel was rejected. He went to Vietnam to transform himself by killing himself. It was a death wish. That's why he enlisted. And it ended up transforming in another way. And then he went to NYU and studied filmmaking under Martin Scorsese and transformed himself again. And then as a screenwriter and then as a director of genre films, he made two horror films and then he made Salvador and Platoon and suddenly he was a political filmmaker and then he was like this major American filmmaker, like this crazy combination of Stanley Kramer and Godard. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what he was for a period of about 10 years. And, uh, you know, now he's become kind of one of these grand old men of cinema, you know, like he's mm-hmm. at roughly the same place that Hitchcock and John Ford were in the, in the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, He's still transforming himself. And, you know, he was raised by a Catholic um, mother and a Jewish father, but he, I believe he was either Presbyterian or Lutheran, I can't remember which, was the faith that he was taught as a kid. Mm. And then when he was in his 40s, he became a Buddhist. And he, and when I described him as a Buddhist in the book, he said, um, can you please change that to a student of Buddhism? And I said, why? And he said, because I don't feel qualified to call myself a Buddhist. And I said, but you've been a practicing Buddhist for over 20 years. Mm. And he said, yeah, but I don't feel like I've learned enough to call myself a Buddhist. I think I'm a guy who's still studying, which is interesting. And the same thing with with history. You know, Oliver, many of Oliver's closest friends are historians. He doesn't hang out that much with directors and, and actors and people. Most of most of the people that he has dinner with or drinks with or that he invites over to his house are are history professors and and authors of history books. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I called him a historian one time, he said, "I'm not a historian. I'm a student of history." I like that. And he thinks himself. You know, he, the only thing he doesn't think of himself as a student of is is uh, making movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he's clearly he knows enough not to not to be self-deprecating about that. Mm-hmm. But in every other area. And the funny thing is, he knows more about history than a, a lot of probably people who are teaching history do. Mm-hmm. He reads an unbelievable like he probably tears through two or three books a day, a week. And they're history books. They're not. He doesn't read film books. He mm-hmm. reads history books. And he'll email me and say, Matt, there's a new book out about the, you know, it's a it's the first fresh analysis of the Peloponnesian War that I've read in about ten years, and you should read it. And I'm like, I don't know if I I don't know if I'm going to get to that. But of course, I write back. I'm like, I'll get right on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get right on it, Oliver. <laughs> yeah. Well, every time I would meet with him during when I was doing the book, he would he would give me something to read. Mm. I have a whole shelf of books at my house that are books Oliver gave me, and they're all history books. Mm. And sometimes he would send me books. He would have books. He would have his office send me books. He would, you know, he would, and sometimes he'd have things ordered from Amazon and send them to me. He's like, "Here's a book about 
Here's about the book about here's a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It'll give you some context for JFK and Nixon that that you know may be of value to you. And it's like it's a 400 page tome, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's you know it's great. And uh, he's undergone transformations. Yeah, he has a lot of them, and he's still and he's still going. He's still going. I don't think we. We're, I think there's going to be at least one or two more permutations of Oliver. I'd wager that you've had a few different transformations. Yeah, probably. Can I say the most impressive thing, or the thing I've always? I don't know if we've actually talked about it too much. What? But I guess I want to know how did you make it work after Jen passed. How did I make it work? Yeah, I, how did you move on? And I mean, and I say that I ask with the most sincerity. Don't give me that face of uh, like, oh, I don't know. Fuck you for asking this. No, Sam, I don't think that. I don't think that. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. I think I'm. I think it took me honestly. I think it's taken. It took me about ten years to, you know, it's like passing a kidney stone, you know, a loss like that. Like, and it works its way through your system over the course of years, and you feel the pain of the thing moving through your system. So I don't know how much, honestly, I don't know. Like, this is not a situation where I'm very reluctant to embrace any how-to sort of, you know, advice sure, things. on. Know you know, it's like everybody has to deal with this differently. And, like, I think just, you know, um, giving yourself permission to fuck up is important. And the fact that you're, you've, you've has, you have sustained a, an, injur, an injurious, injurious psychic blow when something like that happens and it's like whether it's you know a spouse a parent a child uh, a friend whatever it's like you know you got to think of it as a physical wound it's like you broke your foot or you you know you you got stabbed or you got hit by a car that's what it is it's like something that you have to recover from and there may be lasting damage from it and you just have to learn to deal with it mm. and it's no you know and i tell people like about mental health issues same thing it's like I have a lot of friends who have struggled with depression, you know, bipolar disorder and other things, and um, some of them are very self-conscious about it. And um, and I tell them, you know, it's no different than you have allergies or you have a heart condition or you have, you know, it's like the pollen, the lo- the pollen or pollution level today is too much. I can't go outside. That's the equivalent with some, that's that's what depression does to you. There are times where it's like I don't feel like going to this party. I don't feel like seeing my friends. I think I'm going right. to call in sick to work today because I can't handle it. And that's fine because it's you know your brain is also an organ. It's a part of your body. You know I think that's I think that's probably the only piece of advice I can give that I don't think would be total bullshit is like listen to what your body is telling you. Listen to what your mind is telling mm. you. And remember that you're only human and and don't like. It's not an Iron Man or an Iron Woman contest, you know? Like, I think that was a mistake. I think I lost a lot of crucial mental energy in the early years after Jen's death, pretending that, like, buying into this myth that the main goal of a person who suffered a loss is to demonstrate to the world that they're doing just fine, you know? And I know a lot of my friends who have sustained losses recently who are, I see them going through that too. And it's like, I don't know if there's any remedy for that. I think everybody, I think on some level it must be instinctive. It's like you prove like, look how well I'm holding up. I'm doing great. Isn't that great? Do you need any help? No. (laughs) And, uh, but I think that's, I think it's a very American way of dealing with grief and it's incredibly debilitating and destructive. Mm. And I think it comes out of, I, I think it's always been true to a degree because we're a country that was founded on stick up the ass Puritan view of the world. But I think the industrial revolution probably worsened it because I think a lot of the way that we teach people to process grief is about you are a worker on an assembly line of one kind or another and you're expected to keep up your end. And if you falter, somebody else has to do more work. And so they want to make you feel guilty that you can't function at the level that you're, you know, at your highest possible level at all times. And that's why people work themselves to death. That's why they, you know, consume massive amounts of coffee and other stimulants, why they don't get enough sleep, all of this shit, because we're, you know, we're still treated like cogs in the machine, no matter what kind of industry we're in. That's the way that America treats its workers. And it poisons our personal lives you know and grief is the single biggest example of that like oh your mom died all right i'm sorry take a week off from work a week 
<laughs> you know, yeah. a week. And, you know, childbirth is the same thing. Until fairly, fairly recently in this country, you know, a lot of jobs they would give them they would give the mom two two weeks off. Two weeks. You pushed another human being out of your body and you get two weeks. Two it's weeks. like, yeah, take a couple of weeks you off. Get Christmas break off. That'd exactly. It's like let's try to time off. this so that it's yeah. you know so that yeah, let's try to have the let us try to have the baby at the beginning of November so we can tack it on to Thanksgiving break. You know, <laughs> I mean like what is that? It's, it's insane. It's yeah, it's completely insane. But like, yeah, like more a more realistic understanding of what that what an experience like that takes out of you is really essential and um you know i don't like to i i don't like to say i i really don't i'm not that comfortable talking about what i've learned in a situation like this because i just it's not a one size fits all thing mm -hmm. you know there are people who just soldier on and that's the way they deal with it and they don't like to talk about things and maybe they're just people who don't like to talk about it and like i don't want to make them feel like they're doing it wrong mm -hmm. but i just mean in my own personal case um it's not a contest. You don't get a trophy for, you know, um, how well you withstand the punishment that life throws at you. Yeah. You know, like, like I, I just don't, like, in retrospect, I think it's really stupid, some of the things that I was saying and doing during that period. And I think other people looked at me and were thinking, that poor man, what's wrong with him? Yeah, but this is the <laughs> thing we're talking about. You got to give room for yourself to fuck up. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, definitely. So that's... That's the best. That's about the best I can offer. Here's the last thing I want to say, mm -hmm. and it's the advice you gave me. Okay, and you gave it to me about a year ago. Okay, yeah, and uh, it was me emailing you asking about Matt. What should I do? Should I go back to school? Should I? What? This is before the Roxy, stuff. right? Yes, and um, you said this is, this is. I have this Facebook message right here. Um, be nice to people and help them out. But don't let yourself become attached to any institution or structure. Use them for what you can, what you can. But remember what an old copy editor told me 20 years ago, when one of my favorite editors got fired despite a sterling record of award-winning work, because the company was consolidating positions. Matt, let this be a lesson to you. You may love your coworkers. Your coworkers may love you. You may love your boss. The boss may love you. But the company will never love you. Yep, it's true. The company will never love you. There is no company that will ever love you. And 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 I laugh whenever I hear like at a shareholders meeting or you know a company wide meeting or or staff meeting or anything where it's like we're all one big family. It's like we're not a fucking family. We're a bunch of people <laughs> who work together. You know, like is there anybody here who believes that? Like I like all of you, but we're not a family. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's and it's true, and you got to look out for yourself, and especially now. Is that why you do so many different things? Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I have mentally, I always have a suitcase packed in case the house catches on fire. Mm -hmm. You know, because a lot of houses have caught on fire in my life, and I've had to flee. You know, I at least I'm, I, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer when it comes to learning from my experiences, but at <laughs> least I learned that. At least I learned that. Like, keep a fucking suitcase packed in case the house catches on fire, because at some point it's going to, mm. you know. And you got to get out. <laughs> and you've gotten out. I have gotten out, and, and you're alive. And I have a suitcase right over there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this, Matt. And my pleasure. Special thanks to the people at Abrams for bringing Matt out for the book event at CineFamily earlier this month. And speaking of which, you can purchase Matt's latest tome, The Oliver Stone Experience, wherever books are sold. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, your local bookstore. You can also read Matt on what is almost a daily basis at New York Magazine Vulture, where he writes about television, and RogerEbert.com, where he writes about film. Lastly, a big thanks to Matt for coming over to the house sitting in the backyard and being so open. Oh, and for all the advice he's given me over the years, I'm going to have to figure out how to pay him back one day. If you enjoyed today's episode of Talk Easy, there's a fair chance you may enjoy our episodes with other film critics. Amy Nicholson, Wesley Morris, Alyssa Wilkinson. 
We've also had filmmakers on too, including Ira Sachs, Kelly Reichardt, and more. As always, helping spread word about this week's episode or the show in general would be much appreciated. A review on iTunes, no matter how long it is, really does help new listeners find the show. If you're not currently doing so already, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop us a line about anything, feel free to email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod, as well as our website, www.talkeasypod.com. Our music this week is by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Social media by Maria Mayella. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.